Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the first episode of our special series on my PhD thesis. By now, you hopefully have listened to my episode outlining the plan for this series, explaining why I wanted to make it in the first place, and setting the scene if you were unsure whether it's for you or not. As is customary, this first episode of the Patreon series is available to all listeners to give you a feel for this format and my more academic style of writing. All PhD theses are structured into chapters, and mine was no different, so here we look at the first part of the introduction, where the reader will be informed what my research aims are, the relevant methodologies, fascinating contrasts between the honour of the nation and the honour of the gentleman, and why national honour generally is worth your time. Yes, this thesis was not built for podcasting, it was built for getting me the PhD in Trinity College Dublin, so to avoid overloading you, I have divided this introduction in two. Trust me, it's pretty dense, I think you'll need the break. The first episode sets out my case with some juicy background, and the next episode looks at the remarkable variety of language which accompanied National Honour. We'll also be looking more carefully at the existing historiography, so what other historians have said about National Honour, how they treated it, if at all, and what I see this thesis contributing to in the study of Victorian history. In short, this episode will hopefully whet your appetite for what's to come, and as always, make sure to check out the Patreon post to get this script, and the entire thesis text, if you need some light reading in your spare time. If you're interested in more discussions, stick around to the end of the episode, and we'll reflect on what we've looked at here, and prepare you for the next instalment. Some of this stuff may be familiar. We've kind of covered a few of these chapters in different ways before. We examined the Trent Affair in a mini-series a few years ago, and this crisis constitutes chapter 4 of the thesis. Patrons may also have listened to Diplomacy, Britain versus America, which examines Anglo-American relations from 1838 to 1846, a period which is covered in chapter 3. We also looked at the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 during the Britain Goes to War series, and that's covered in Chapter 6. So the behaviour of figures like Disraeli, Salisbury, Gladstone and Earl Darby may ring a bell if you've listened to that series before. That said, in this thesis series we're more focused on national honour rather than the context of those crises necessarily. 
Although diplomacy does feature heavily here, it wasn't the primary focus of the thesis, so it won't be the main thing that we're looking at. Still, if you've done that background listening, you may find my coverage easier to digest. While I do provide context for everything that happens, the narrative is only as important as the analysis which follows it, so for the juicier diplomatic drama, make sure and track down those older series, although that 12-part diplomacy series on Anglo-American relations is behind a Patreon paywall, just as a reminder. A further reminder for non-patrons is that if you do want to sign up, the link to do so can be found in the description of this episode. If you do sign up, you'll not just access this series and support the show, you'll also gain access to hours of additional content and guarantee your access to future exclusive series like The Age of Bismarck. I really appreciate any and all support, and if you've no idea who I am or what I've been up to for the last few years, you could look at this PhD thesis series as the result of your consistent support. I couldn't have done it without you, and I really hope this act of sharing is suitable recompense for those who spent many years of patience and faith in me and when diplomacy fails his mission to make history thrive. A small disclaimer though before we begin, it is entirely possible that the following text won't translate very well to audio format. In particular, we don't have time to read the footnotes, which seem to have bred since I last read this section. If you hear me making a point and you're unsure how I reached that conclusion, or if you hear a historian referenced and you want to read more of their stuff, make sure you track down the script in our Patreon page where these things can be explored and all your pressing questions will be addressed. For everything else, come to the Facebook group and ask your question directly, if you feel so inclined. Since I made this thesis to be read rather than read aloud, I can't guarantee it will be for everyone. But if you enjoy getting deeper into history than normal shows would, if you were curious at the kind of standard expected at the highest academic level, and if you genuinely want to know more about how the rhetoric surrounding national honour made such an impact, then please do listen in and let me know what you thought. What follows is the completely unabridged, unedited text of my thesis, so you have been warned. Without any further ado, I will now take you to the first part of my thesis introduction. Introduction, part one. What is national honour? Wherein does it lie? When was it invented and by what nation? How many aggressions amount to pulling the nose of a nation? What proceedings on the part of a foreign court may be construed into treading on our toes without an apology? When the satirist presented these questions in 1835, it wasn't searching for answers about national honour, but was instead challenging the Morning Herald's claims that it had been damaged. If we are to believe the old lady, the satirist continued, referencing the Morning Herald, our national honour has been insulted at least once a week since the appointment of Lord Palmerston to the Foreign Office. Certainly the old lady was assured of its position. The Morning Herald charged that the honour of England has been sullied and that her fame has declined among the nations and that foreign powers have aggrandized themselves at our expense during the last five years is unfortunately as true as it is humiliating. 
The following week, an admiral's request to enter the Black Sea was presented as a disgrace, and when the Russian Tsar declared his intention to exterminate all Polish opposition, the Morning Herald wondered, Will the government take any steps to vindicate the national honour and redeem the national faith? These expressions were representative of a 19th century pattern to use the rhetoric of honour in a public setting, and they were not exclusive to the press. When criticising the government for reneging both on its pledges to Denmark and its threats to the Germans in the 1864 Schleswig-Holstein crisis, Lord Salisbury urged members, Look at the difficulty of your situation now. You cannot, by any form of words you can use, persuade foreign powers that you are in earnest. Salisbury warned that, In any future European complications that may arise, you may tell them that your interests are greatly concerned, that you are not indifferent to a question, that you view the matter in a very serious light, and that the aggressors might be met by armed intervention. But until you have committed yourselves to irrevocable war, you will not be able to make those listen to whom you address yourselves. Salisbury believed that This loss of dignity and honour is not a sentiment, it is a loss of actual power. It is a loss of power which will have to be brought back at some future day by the blood and treasure of England. Salisbury could condemn the government by leveraging this loss of honour against them, drawing upon rhetoric which was understood and familiar in parliamentary debate. The tactic was effective because of the value which the national honour was said to possess, to the extent that statesmen will do all they could to avoid being charged with its mismanagement. Thus, while debating the merits of a commercial treaty with France in 1860, Earl Grey claimed it was impossible to sign that treaty without inflicting a stain on the honour of England in the eyes of Europe. However, according to Lord Wodehouse, the Under-Secretary for Foreign Affairs, that was scarcely called for, because no one of their lordships, to whatever political party he might belong, would ever think of entertaining for a moment the idea of sacrificing the honour of the country in any way. When in 1865, veteran Whig statesman Lord Elko spoke to the House of Commons on the point of honour involved in Canadian defences, recommending an attack on the United States rather than costly fortifications along the border, he assured other members that the course he suggested was strictly consistent with national honour. But the Conservative former Secretary for the Colonies, Sir John Packington, disagreed and accused him of saying that we must not push the doctrine of honour too far, language which is not acceptable either in this house or elsewhere. This doctrine of honour would be pushed very far indeed during the period 1830 to 1880 and beyond. In Parliament, ministers underlined their care for national honour in the presentation of their foreign policy successes, while opposition figures contested these claims by bringing forth evidence of dishonourable behaviour. One is drawn to the rhetoric at play in these exchanges, which were presented to the public by an expanding newspaper press. The rhetoric of national honour could be a potent political weapon, applicable to numerous scenarios, both foreign and domestic, and dependent upon a pre-existing belief system which claimed to value British honour above all else. Despite its prevalence, however, national honour and its rhetoric has not been analysed in the 19th century. 
It is intended that this research project will rectify this shortcoming in Victorian historiography by explicating the belief system of national honour and assessing the rhetoric which accompanied it. To succeed in this formidable task, one is required to equip their research project with the best possible structure and provide clear, actionable research goals. 1. Structure, Methodology and Research Questions Honour, wrote the historian John A. Lynn, is a formidable concept, one of the most complex terms in the English language. It encompasses several levels of meaning, rich in moral connotations and emotional overtones. On another occasion, Lynn wrote that to try and understand the 17th century without weighing the influence of war and military institutions would be like trying to dance without listening to the music. It is possible to connect Lynn's two statements. National honour was part of the music of the 19th century, which successive historians have failed to notice or appreciate to the detriment of their studies. It will be suggested that contemporaries recognised the pleasing sound of this music and used it where possible to frame foreign incidents, mobilise support and defend policy decisions. This presents significant implications for Victorian foreign policy studies and such implications are best assessed by an analysis of contemporary rhetoric. What was rhetoric in a mid-Victorian sense? It may be viewed as a system of expression, a language of intent which pressed for a certain outcome. According to Peter Munns, rhetoric is the art of persuasion. Indeed, rhetoric could be a powerful persuasive tool, and when fused with an established ideology, such as national honour, it becomes possible to identify the tenets of a prevailing belief system and the contemporary cognizance of its political potency. Victorian contemporaries presented national honour in Parliament, while the printed media reinforced or challenged their message. Scholars have assessed how these public sources reveal significant rhetorical patterns in domestic politics, the diffusion of scientific ideas, legal reform and the abolitionist movement, thereby revealing lexicons understood and used by contemporaries. These studies present models of analysis which may be followed, but a quantitative approach, such as that used by Amanda Goodrich when measuring the frequency of aristocracy in public language, is of less use than a qualitative approach which explicates national honour from the speeches and expressions of the period. It will be contended here that national honour was a familiar concept and that contemporaries used national honour's rhetorical power as a political tool to attain their ends with varying degrees of success. Such ends could be as insignificant as deploying the language of honour to criticise the shortcomings of ministerial policy, or as significant as Palmerston using the insult to British honour inflicted by Washington during the Trent Affair to push Anglo-American relations to the brink of war. Moreover, just as honour was a popular policy imperative, so too was national honour a popular idea among public opinion. This did not necessarily mean contemporaries acted cynically, using honour merely because it resonated with the public, rather than because they believed in it. It is certainly possible for both to be true, and as Alan Hertz contended, Compelling linguistic evidence shows that, at least until 1914-18, honour was one of the key categories for British thinking about foreign policy. Hertz also perceived that honour was frequently associated with imperatives such as interest, security or other advantages, 
what he referred to as a duplex. Through this linkage, contemporaries could argue that a failure to defend national honour would jeopardise Britain's expanding interests, providing additional legitimacy to the ethic. What emerges from this study is honour's rhetorical potency and its frequent deployment in a political setting. Parliamentary debates where national honour's principles, pitfalls and contradictions were expressed are thus an essential source of evidence. The expansion of print media must also be considered, because as Catherine Ricks demonstrated, parliamentary debates were regularly printed and distributed, and some even worked to have more pivotal debates published as standalone pamphlets. However, newspapers also had an agency of their own, and it was common for editors, columnists and speakers to urge their audience to value national honour, criticising those that would damage it, while lauding those that would defend it, if necessary, through war. One may thus question whether such sources were compelled to engage with national honour because of its popularity, or whether the ethic became more popular because of their material. Questions like these will be considered, but they are not the focus of this research project, nor is it the intention to present national honour as a primary cause of major international incidents, as other scholars have attempted. Rather, the focus will be on the deployment of rhetoric and the implications of these tactics for British foreign policy. National honour was invoked to press for war, whether it was Lord John Russell informing the Commons of war with Russia in 1854, or Sir Edward Grey asserting the necessity of war with Germany to his contemporaries in 1914. Although these are arguably more famous examples, the lexicon of honour remained largely consistent whether a crisis concluded in war or not, and it is in those understudied, lesser-known incidents that some of the most striking examples of this rhetoric can be found. Confrontations with Russia, France and the United States produced anxious discussions of honour. Both sides of the political aisle launched rhetorical attacks against opponents who were perceived to have mishandled the national honour through excessive concession or improper reactions to received insults. Contemporaries were amenable to invoking honour if they sensed an opportunity to weaken their opponents, yet those they criticised could deploy honour in their own defence and charge them with cynicism. Due to this focus on what may be called peaceful crises, this research project will not assess the Crimean War or contemporary efforts to leverage national honour within it. The volume of newspapers, parliamentary debates and public speeches delivered during the conflict represent a well too deep for this research project to explore. Indeed, so vast is the Crimean War historiography, one could argue it deserves a research project of its own. However, while that conflict is excluded, its long shadow is inescapable. The decision to separate this research project into two distinct sections facilitates a broader survey of honour across what might be deemed pre- and post-Crimean War periods. Considering national honour both before and after the Crimean War reveals developments and cleavages which were significant in themselves. The 1856 Treaty of Paris had outlawed privateering and affirmed standards of international law among the Sinees, but national honour was not supplanted. In fact, the ethic arguably experienced a rejuvenation as the increased importance of prestige fused national honour to imperialist policies, which compelled Britons to think and speak more widely of their empire and its requirements. 
To examine the rhetoric of national honour in the mid-Victorian period, one must present the necessary structure to best accommodate these ends. A case study methodology recommends itself, as this facilitates an examination of national honours rhetoric across a 50-year spectrum. The case study method has been utilised by other scholars of honour, but it can present problems of detail and analysis if chronology is ignored. The solution is to combine a chronological approach with case studies, and to divide this research project into two sections, with three chapters in each. The first section considers the period 1830-1850, consisting of what may be called miniature case studies. The second section devotes chapter-sized case studies to the Trent Affair, the Schleswig-Holstein Crisis and the Russo-Turkish War. Specifically, Chapter 1 examines Whig foreign policy between 1830-1841, focusing on the rhetoric of national honour therein. Chapter 2 considers the concept of insult and how contemporaries responded to insult during the 1840s. Chapter 3 assesses Anglo-American relations from 1838 to 1846, drawing on insult, negotiation and the idea of compromise to judge how honour was used by contemporaries. Chapter 4 analyses Washington's insult in the 1861 Trent Affair and how Palmerston made striking use of honour to demand satisfaction from President Lincoln. Chapter 5 assesses the failure of Palmerston's administration in the 1864 Schleswig-Holstein crisis, which attempted to fulfil its Danish obligations, but undermined its mission with a shameful policy of bluff. Chapter 6 presents Benjamin Disraeli's premiership and his attempt to deploy prestige to justify greater British involvement in the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78, with dramatic consequences for British status, albeit tempered by imperial failure in Afghanistan and South Africa. It is also important to consider existing methodologies which provide honour with a coherent structure and explain its inner logic. Of note is the work of Frank Henderson Stewart, who conceived of honour as a tripartite concept, possessing inner, outer and claim-right aspects. Stewart posited that the individual had expectations of a certain treatment based on their social position, which he understood as an honour group. Contemporary views of honour certainly reflected the sense of entitlement, as the Sunday Review argued, the honourable man will act as honourably when his actions are known to himself alone as he does when all the world is looking out. He acts not to win the applause of others, but to satisfy a sense of honour in his own breast. Although Stuart intended his methodology for personal honour only and did not conceive of its use in national honour, this has not stopped an admittedly limited number of scholars from applying his findings to both spheres and it may be useful to follow this example in Victorian foreign policy. Still, if Stuart engaged with what honour looked like, others have attempted to explain how it worked, and whether the ethic was inherently logical. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In his study of British intervention in the First World War, Avner Offer suggested that Honor adhered to a script which explained how contemporaries interacted with and deployed it. This is an important contention, as Stuart was criticised for failing to define the Code of Honour and what it prescribed. Honour, as Offer contends, should not be considered as an irrational chivalric code, but as a formula which prescribed rewards for a nation which adhered to it, and penalties for those that violated it. This formula may be deemed an honour script, which could legitimise policies that appeared otherwise reckless and provided contemporaries with a narrative framework that was acceptable and understood. But honour, as Offer argued, could also be a snare, based on a flawed logic of belligerence and a misleading cognitive bias, on an optical illusion that blinded the actors to alternative scripts of honour, to other forms of courage and risk-taking, such as concession or conciliation. Flawed or not, contemporaries identified with this script's imperatives, and they struggled under the weight of its tenets when more sensible alternatives, such as compromise, presented themselves. Caught between the ideology of honour and the imperatives of statecraft, contemporaries defended their actions in Parliament and occasionally through the press, justifying those occasions when they could not fully commit to national honour's demands while being unable to ignore them. Contemporaries were also coming under greater public scrutiny in the extra-parliamentary sphere. Their parliamentary speeches were increasingly linked to the burgeoning Victorian press, and as Catherine Ricks has argued, MPs spoke as much to be reported by the press and read by their constituents as to influence their colleagues in the House. It may be debated whether national honour was leveraged to gain local popularity when one speech was read, yet it should be noted that print media both regionally and in London engaged with the ethic. To ascertain as wide a survey of national honour as possible, the London press will be supplemented by these regional papers accessed in their digitised form. This research project will address deficits in the historiographies of honour, diplomatic history and Victorian culture through three distinct research questions. First, is it possible to explicate national honour from British foreign policy and explain the ethics pressures, contradictions and overall themes? Second, how do contemporaries use the rhetoric of honour in the public sphere, both to defend their policy decisions and to criticise their rivals? Third, 
To what extent did this rhetoric of national honour facilitate or constrain contemporaries in their pursuit of policy? While addressing these questions, this thesis will be informed by Stuart's tripartite methodology and by the contributions of Avner Offer. It is intended that a more complete picture of national honour will be acquired from this approach by assessing its rhetorical power, the broader impact of the ethic on Victorian foreign policy can also be ascertained. But what was national honour? How influential was it perceived to be? And what constraints did it place on contemporary policymakers? These questions will be addressed next. The student does not want for materials analysing honour in its interpersonal form. In recent decades, scholars have explicated honour's tenets and developed new methods for interpreting its importance. Some have assumed the challenge of reaching an agreed definition of honour, yet despite the fact that honour has recently received more attention, the history of honour, as Frank Henderson Stewart recorded, has not been traced in any detail for even one of the languages or the major countries of Europe. The subject lies in a vast twilight, broken only by a few bright, but narrow beams of light. Some have focused these narrow beams of light upon nation-specific surveys of honour, assessing the ethics position in European and American societies. It has also been contended that honour is an ancient idea, and that it subsumed both the armies of Alexander the Great and the elite of ancient Roman society. Mediterranean models of honour were particularly noteworthy, as John G. Perstiani recognised in a groundbreaking comparative study published in 1965. Nor has Britain been wholly neglected. Nigel Saul considered the origins of chivalry in the Middle Ages and linked this belief system to the emergence of honour as a gentlemanly ideal in late medieval England. Mervyn James, among others, analysed English honour from the late medieval to the early modern period. Authors such as Brendan Kane and Courtney Thomas examined honour in Irish and English society respectively, while others have considered the role played by related ideas, such as credit, status and reputation. The gentlemanly ritual for acquiring satisfaction for wounded honour, the duel, has also been assessed. James Kelly examined duelling in Ireland to 1860, and important research by Stephen Banks traced the decline of the duel in England to a similar period. Although subject to much greater criticism in Britain than the continent, the duel could not be erased overnight so long as statesmen had engaged with the practice within recent memory. It has been suggested that as gentlemen replaced the illegal combat of the secluded space with the defamation trials of the courtroom, the equal dignity of the citizen also replaced the positional honour of the gentleman. But this change in custom and tradition was not universally satisfactory. Officers in particular still had honour to defend and were still vulnerable to insult. Without the duel, how could the law of honour be maintained? These issues moved Fraser's magazine to remark in 1865. We are obviously not so far ahead of the rest of the civilised world as was vainly fancied, urging that it was peculiarly incumbent on those who called so loudly for the virtual abolition of the point of honour to prevent the triumph of their opinions from turning out premature and transitory. If gentlemen were less likely to fight for their honour, it did not follow that honour ceased to be a factor in gentlemanly relations. As the Scottish writer, lawyer and politician 
John Boyd Kinnear asserted in 1865, Honour is an essential ingredient in the character of a gentleman. Kinnear elaborated on the virtues of the ideal gentleman. Above all, he must be honest. And... The reproach of falsehood should be so abhorrent to him that he would almost give his life's blood to have it wiped out, since honour was the delicate flower into which truth and justice expand, and which fades, withers, and falls the moment the stem is wounded or bruised. A gentleman was expected to have a perfect control over his temper. It was true that Society has undergone changes and modifications in this respect since duelling has gone out of fashion, yet it was also doubtful whether the most famous duelists were ever the truest gentlemen. That both the gentleman and the nation shared an eagerness to defend their honour was frequently referenced through metaphorical devices in Parliament. An honourable gentleman would defend his friends, particularly the weak, he would always be honest and truthful, increasing the power of his pledged word, and he would fight if necessary for his personal dignity and reputation. He would always maintain his credit by fulfilling his financial commitments and discharging his debts. Statesmen moulded their conduct in office upon these standards and applied them to their stewardship of the country, particularly in foreign policy. The gentleman thus identified his personal honour with the direction of British foreign policy and it could be enhanced or damaged by his conduct. The duelling lexicon was also carried over, as Barry O'Neill perceived. Two national states treat each other as if they were persons, exchanging insults, issuing challenges and retaliating against wrongs in the name of national honour. Similarly did Ute Fravert discern that War thus resembled the duel, except that it was fought not between two men, but between millions. If violence was less common among statesmen, it formed a key plank of national honour. This is not surprising, considering national honour's development in the patriotic soldier of the Napoleonic Wars, particularly for continental nations. Britain's triumph in the national test against France could only encourage sentiments of nationhood coloured by the sense of triumphant superiority. Those scholars that have attempted to explain how personal honour developed into a collective or national honour identify this period of conflict as a watershed moment in the ethics transformation. As monarchs had identified their honour in the fortunes of their subjects, Carl Ludwig I asserted that it was not a big step from the idea of the king's honour to the state's or the nation's honour. National honour had existed before the 19th century, yet it was after 1815 that the ethic truly blossomed, buoyed by a personification of the nation that lent itself to a democratisation of honour, to which all technically could aspire. As James Joel discerned, nationalism helped legitimise this idea because the nation, now regarded as a living organism, was justified in taking any measures whatsoever which were thought necessary for its survival or expansion. This watershed moment in the development of honour further recommends the mid-Victorian period as the focus of this research project. In the British case especially, it is remarkable how few efforts have been made to assess this transfer of honour from the person to the nation. This may be explained by the imperfect and incomplete nature of this transfer, 
Soldiers were imbued both with a concern for their own honour and for the honour of their country which they represented. This developed into a vigorous culture of honour within the officer corps, which varied in intensity and custom across Europe. However one conceives of the two spheres of honour, it is evident that more research is required to assess this pivotal shift in British culture and nationalism. It is not intended that this puzzle will be solved here, yet this research project will clarify some of the cleavages and commonalities of honours, personal and national spheres, and scholars may be encouraged by this analysis to explore such a complex question more extensively in the future. But what did national honour truly mean? It may be interpreted as a right to respect from other nations, but the ethic went much deeper than this. Its depth of meaning provided national honour with a versatile rhetoric that could accommodate highly varied crises. An example is provided from parliamentary debates on the Schleswig-Holstein crisis, when in 1864 the leader of the opposition, Earl Darby, told the House of Lords, Dearly as I love peace, I love honour more. This looked very much like an argument in favour of a war policy towards Austria and Prussia, who were then invading Denmark. Having pledged to defend the Danes, Palmerston was criticised in Parliament for reneging on this commitment, and national honour was a favoured weapon. However, neither Derby nor the Tories presented any policy alternative to that which the Prime Minister followed. Derby was also mindful of the opposition to war with the German powers, from both the Queen and most of Parliament, and he had no intention of pursuing war himself. Leveraging the rhetoric of national honour against the government meant that Earl Darby did not necessarily need to solve the Gordian knot of Schleswig-Holstein, but the lack of substance behind his criticism was noted. He and his colleagues were accused of trying to discredit the Liberals and facilitate a change in government. Thus, what seems on the surface like a call to war for the sake of national honour was in fact an example of political opportunism and even cynicism facilitated by the rhetoric of honour. This pattern of behaviour was replicated when national honour was believed to have suffered an insult. Nothing, contemporaries maintained, should come before vindicating the national honour. As Sir Robert Peel asserted during a Commons debate on the Opium War, it is your duty to vindicate the honour of England where vindication is necessary and to demand reparation wherever reparation is due. This vindication could be best acquired by confronting the insult and arresting an apology. However, in cases where diplomatic satisfaction was not forthcoming, ministers were forced into an ideological corner where war was the only escape. This presented an opportunity for opposition figures to declare that, were they in power, they would have handled the wounded national honour more carefully. They made this point by declaring their favour for honour, as Earl Darby did above, which could be contrasted with the lack of ministerial passion for the ethic. They also emphasised the consequences of disgrace, dishonour and the endangering of British interests which would follow. But statesmen could also go too far if they committed excesses or pursued vengeance in place of vindication. It was also dishonourable to offend foreign powers with rude or brisk language. Thus, Queen Victoria could complain of Palmerston, I thought that he often endangered the honour of England by taking a very prejudiced and one-sided view of a question, adding that his writings were always as bitter as gall and did great harm. Where a policy was thought contrary to national honour in the first place, such as 
truckling to a foreign power or issuing the bluster of empty threats, contemporaries were quick to use the established rhetoric for their own ends. This suggests that national honour required two broad responses. It had either to be consistently maintained or defended when attacked. Failure to do so invited both national ruin and condemnation from the political body. National honour's preponderance of synonyms aided this use of rhetoric, as it provided a versatility which sharpened the ethics' political utility. Okay, history friends, hopefully you're still with me after that. We just looked at my intentions for this thesis and we covered a bit of background on honour-related studies, but there is a good bit left to cover. In the next episode, we're going to explore the language of honour more deeply, including numerous synonyms associated with national honour like prestige, dignity and good faith. We'll also look at the historiography of national honour to see where historians have and have not addressed the ethic and what conclusions they reached on it. If this kind of technical examination is of interest, then I hope you'll sign up to our Patreon page or continue listening if you've already gained access. Please feel free to ask me any questions on this research in the Facebook group since that's where I'm most likely to see these questions and answer them. And don't worry, let's just say we're all learning this stuff together, so no question is too stupid. We're all history friends here and there will be no judgement. Hopefully from the above text you've been given some impression as to how national honour could be used by Victorians both cynically and sincerely. One of the things that recommends a study of national honour rhetoric is the fact that we don't have to decide how sincere contemporaries were when they referenced national honour. It's entirely possible that these figures and newspapers were only talking about national honour because they knew it was popular and that this would heap pressure upon the targeted party. That said, I would argue that these efforts would never have been successful in the first place if national honour wasn't so highly valued. In this way, you could see this study of rhetoric both as proof of national honour's prevalence and a demonstration of contemporary political tactics. In the Victorian political world, contemporaries were keen to take advantage of any potential lever which might grant them access to power or undermine their opponents. National honour was a key aspect of this strategy, and we should wonder what this says about the period, and about national honour generally, if it could be used and occasionally abused in this manner. Contemporaries were acting upon traditions which emphasised how important national honour was, which could only grant greater legitimacy to their positions. In a Lord's Session of 1846, for instance, the Whig peer Lord Broom referenced the declarations of Charles James Fox, a pivotal 18th century statesman who had strong views about national honour. As Lord Broom declared, It was a wise remark of Mr Fox, in answer to some flippant remark about going to war and plunging the country into the extremities of that greatest of all calamities, for mere honour, he, Mr Fox, said, Show me where a war with any people, on a calculation of interest or advantage, ever yet was justifiable in the eyes of rational men. But it is when the defence of a country is concerned. It is when the honour of a country is concerned. It is when that honour and that name, which every independent, powerful country, unconquered and unconquerable like this, must preserve untouched and pure. 
it is to preserve that honour unassailed, and that name untarnished, that alone the dreadful extremity of war should be had recourse to. And if all efforts shall be made, as I hope and trust they will be made, consistently with our honour to preserve the inestimable blessings of peace, and if those efforts should fail, I believe the unanimous support of the people of this country will be given to the government in that sad though necessary alternative. That said, despite this apparent enthusiasm, contemporaries were also wary that national honour could lead to a conflict that nobody wanted. There was a danger in presenting every foreign confrontation or disagreement as a matter of honour because it reduced opportunities for compromise and could flare tempers beyond safe levels. Thus, referencing Anglo-French relations in 1848, Prime Minister Lord John Russell, who we'll be seeing quite a lot of, believed recent disturbances did show how circumstances of a trivial character may affect our relations with foreign countries and what sensitive pride, what susceptibility there may be on the part of nations which, like France and England, are nations of great power and of great strength, but yet extremely jealous of anything that may in the least trench upon their honour. I mention it here to show by what a slight accident, and with what little fault on the part of the executive government on one side or the other, the peace of the world may be endangered. These things will be explored in greater detail as the series progresses, but I hope you see the potential going forward. Referencing national honour and diplomatic relations was one thing. To acquire the necessary support for a given policy, national honour was also invaluable for clarifying what was at stake and rousing the enthusiasm of one's colleagues and the public towards a particular course. It had the effect, as we'll see later, of cutting through the noise, focusing hearts and minds upon a desired outcome. At the same time, national honour could also be immensely damaging for the government that was charged with mishandling it, just as it could damage a government if they tried to leverage national honour without the appropriate resources to back this approach up. Hopefully I've picked your curiosity by now. It's kind of hard to bear in mind the fact that most people couldn't care less about this stuff because I've been up to my neck in it for so many years, and I do find it kind of hard to tell what is or is not interesting to those outside of this world. So all I can say is thanks so much for listening to me here and humouring my efforts to bring my research forward. I hope you do decide to sign up, but if you don't, Go in peace, especially if you were bored to tears here, though I suspect if you are still listening, you will be interested in listening further, and you know where to go. But either way, my name is Dr. Zach, and this has been the first introduction episode of my PhD thesis series. You are a lovely history friend. I don't know a lot, but I know that for a fact. Thanks so much for listening and supporting, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.